It's a challenging time for agriculture at the moment, so we meet the man this morning from the Royal Navy, who's become the new regional director of the NFU. Following Brexit, the NFU is doing all it can to make sure that it represents farmers' needs here right across all aspects of agriculture. Also, the return of the big farmland bird count for 2017, and we've an update on the beet campaign with less than a month to go. That's right, yeah, yeah. The uh, seasons come and go, and we're uh, we're nearly through yet yet another campaign, and we look forward to a fantastic crop, hopefully with great conditions to start sowing at the beginning of March. Sunday, February 5th, 2017. This is the farming program with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. Last week, we heard of the problems facing those growing oilseed rape after a difficult couple of years through drought and the cabbage flea beetles, especially uh, further in the south. Well, this week, while at an IOSR meeting at Syngenta, Andrew Ward caught up with AHDB's Lizzie Sagu to discuss oilseed rape and particularly levels of sulphur. It's an important issue, especially at this time of year. We know all crops need sulphur and rape in particular has a high sulphur requirement. Um, The current recommendations in RB209 of 50 to 75 kilograms per hectare are based on quite old work. And I think we've got some farmers and agronomists who have been questioning those because we know self-deposition has gone down and we know yields have gone up. So logically, you could expect, and I think when we started this work, we did think we might see um, higher higher sulphur rates being needed. But now we've done a programme of work um, since over the last few years. Um, when we finish this season, we will have a total of 18 sulphur response experiments on rape across the country. And basically, that's shown that the optimum sulphur rates we've got at the moment in RB29 are 50 to 75 are about right. So what I'd say to farmers is that if you're growing rape, you do need to be putting on sulphur. You really need a good reason not to be putting on sulphur if you're growing rape. Um, I would say the current recommendations are sound. Um, And what I'd probably say is that if you're on the heavier land, maybe go to the lower end of that range, put on about 50 kilograms per hectare. If you're on the higher range, if you're on lighter land, you probably want to put a bit more, about 75 kilograms per hectare. And is there any difference in the amount of nitrogen we put on? Because obviously a lot of people uh, look at uh, assessing the nitrogen and the GAI requirements. And is there a difference between putting high and low nitrogen as to how much sulphur interaction there is? Okay, so one of the things we've been looking at in the current programme of work um, is the economic optimum sulphur rates at different nitrogen rates. So what we've done is we've put nitrogen on on almost at the standard rate and then we've also put on nitrogen at a higher rate, an extra 90 kilograms per hectare to really push those yields to test whether or not the crop needs more sulphur um, at higher sort of higher yield Mm. levels. But basically we found no evidence that the high yielding crops need more sulphur. Even where we've had quite high yielding crops and quite significant yield responses to sulphur, the optimums have still been within the current recommended range. I also saw on one of the slides you put up that putting too much sulphur on can actually have a detrimental effect to yield. And that's obviously going at very high rates. Okay. I mean, what I'd say to that is that um, it's never a good good idea to put on more of anything than than you need. And the thing to also note with sulphur is that um, it's um, linked to glucosinolates. If you increase the amount of sulphur you put on, you'll increase the amount of glucosinolates and the rape. And, you know, you don't want to be doing that. So, um, you know, the message is put on the amount that your crop needs and you don't need to be putting on way over that. So, I mean, if you've got growers that are putting on sort of 150 to 200 kilograms per hectare of sulphur as SO3, I would say, 
you know, really consider why you're doing that yeah, and potentially cut it back a bit. Yeah. yeah. And as for tests on this, there are various tests you can look at uh, for testing the ratio of sulfur uh, in the plant. And what would you say, what's the best one for that at the moment? I mean, in, to- in terms of assessing whether your crop is sufficient, I, I, the first thing I would say is look at, um, you know, your field. You know, the best indicator of whether crops likely to need sulfur is the soil type. Light sandy soils tend to be more responsive than heavier soils. If you want to... Um, see whether a crop within a field is deficient. I think the best available test that we've got is the malate sulfate test. It's a leaf tissue test. You should take a sample of the leaf at the beginning of the season, at the start of stem extension, and that will give you a snapshot of whether the crop is deficient at the point of sampling. So that's looking at stem extension, looking at March when the crop's really starting to mature. Yeah, yep. it's a bit of a tricky one in terms of timing because you have to do it early enough so that you can get the result mm. back and you know base your management decisions on that, but not too early before the start. The crops really yeah. start getting yeah. away. Otherwise, it might show up as sufficient mm. when actually you know another two weeks time when mm. the crops really got growing, um, it might actually be deficient then. And of the other crops, obviously, all, all crops require sulphur, but cereals don't require as much as, as rape. Yeah, so all all crops need sulphur, and it's essential plant nutrient. And your crop will get sulphur from a combination of sources. It will get a little bit from the atmosphere, but atmospheric deposition has gone down quite a bit so not as much from the atmosphere it will get some sulfur from the soil i mean there'll be mineralization of sulfur and if those two sources together aren't enough the crop then might need some extra from fertilizer sulfur so i mean with other crops um if you think that your crop doesn't need sulfur you know other crops like potatoes etc it's not that the crop doesn't need sulfur it's just that you know the soil is Mm. the soil and the atmosphere together are supplying enough and the thing that's quite tricky we find with sulfur is we're not particularly good at estimating the mineralization from the soil so you know if you're expecting to see a yield response and you don't it's just because there's been a bit of extra mineralization from the soil Lizzie Segu there. Well, listening to what she had to say was our own agronomist, Sean Sparling. Morning, Sean. Yes, good morning, Sean. Now, I'm going to play it fast and loose with the word fascinating, but it is a fascinating subject, nutrition. We've always concentrated on the big three, nitrogen, phosphate and potash. But we all now appreciate sulphur probably comes number four on that list of important nutrients for the ground crop, along with calcium and magnesium in particular. And we need to keep these nutrients in balance. And what Lizzie just said about making sure you keep them in balance and you don't put too much on is is absolutely spot on. Deficiency and toxicity symptoms from most elements and nutrients in the field look virtually identical. So understanding what you're looking at is vital. Malate sulfate test is a good example of this. Cereals and rape produce this enzyme called malate that mimic the effect of sulfate in the crop. So if they're becoming short of sulfate, it will produce malate to correct that shortfall. It doesn't produce enough to make sure you don't have to worry about a deficiency. It only corrects very low levels of deficiency. So therefore, you need to understand your field. You need to understand in particular, how much organic matter you have in the soil. So every time you have a soil sample analysed, get the organic matter tested as well to see what you're dealing with. 30-odd years ago, most soils in the UK would have organic matter levels above 4%. And when you consider that the organic matter is where the majority of the sulphur is stored in the soil, that's where it's mineralised from, it's a very mobile nutrient, and it will leach through the profile, so it needs that organic matter to lock into. If you haven't got organic matter levels sufficiently high, and a lot of UK soils are probably closer to 2%, 
then you need to consider that and you need to remedy it. You need to get organic matter back into the soil. Put the straw back in instead of taking it off and selling it to power stations. Think about compost, farmyard manures, green manures from cover crops. You need to build up the organic matter. And if you're using things, for example, like gypsum as a soil conditioner or to try and repair a slumped clay soil, Gypsum contains about 80 kilos per tonne of elemental sulphur. And that means if you're putting 10 tonnes of gypsum on, you're putting about 800 kilos of elemental sulphur, which is over 2 tonnes of SO3. And that's not particularly good because that will start when it reacts with the water to produce a very mild form of sulfuric acid, so it'll acidify. And that starts to lock up and influence the release of other nutrients. So my advice would be always get the organic matter checked when you have a soil test or soil analysis carried out. And actually... In the last 10 years, we've all moved towards putting sulphur on with the first dose of nitrogen on oilseed rape in particular because of the responses. But more and more of us, certainly over the last six or seven years, are putting it on as the first dose of nitrogen on winter cereals as well. So we're putting ammonium sulphate on there because we're not getting deposition anymore. The soil organic matter levels are dropping. So we need to make sure the crop has enough ammonium uh, enough sulfate if you like to carry it through the growing season so understanding the subject is the key to the whole thing so rant over moving on to crops out there in the field let's start with all seed rate quite a lot of old disease in these fields and dead looking leaves forget about the foam for the time being uh, too cold for fungicides light leaf spot levels you can find light leaf spot it won't get any worse and we only have protection so wait until things get a little milder know your variety know your disease rating and know where it is and keep an eye on it curb is working well where it's been on for eight weeks or so showing it's working really well but remember it's not going to work quite as well ever on the big well-established deep-rooted black grass that may have been there at application for example if you didn't get clethodim on in october time so it won't ever work quite as well on the big stuff but it should bonsai it and if the experts are to be believed there's no resistance from black grass to propizomide so gently gently catchy monkey and it should do its job if you keep your fingers crossed hard enough. With cereals, aphid activity minimal, no need to be charging out, even if you wanted to, I think you would seriously struggle to do anything out there at the moment. Not because we've had a lot of rain in January, but because it hasn't really dried. We haven't had frosty hard days, we haven't had high wind. I had 40 mil of rain in January, just over 40, but it's never really dried out. So the land is like a full sponge. You get half an inch of rain on top, things are incredibly wet and we get standing water. Water. Be careful when it comes to cross-compliance. Legally, you shouldn't be driving a sprayer through standing water in a field. And you shouldn't need to go spraying unless you've got Carbetamex or Bifenox still to put on oilseed uh, rape. In which case, pick your day, bide your time, and keep an eye on the travelling condition. Bifenox manufacturers, by the way, will say, colder the better. Speak to your agronomist about the timing and getting it right. You've got until the onset of stem extension with that. Slugs, they are still out there. They're moving about. Monitor them and get your traps out and be in front of them. Don't let them be in front of you. And as far as pigeons and rabbits, bangers, crashes and flashes and kites and move them on to your neighbours. That's about the best advice I can give. Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. On to sugar beet then. Three weeks of the campaign to go. Nick Morris can update us. Right, OK, we'll start in uh, with, with campaign. We're now 124 days in and that's around 85% through for this season. And the factory throughput remains stable, which I'm pleased to say. 
Average performance to date now sits at 9,250 tonnes a day, having sliced 1,150,000 tonnes of sugar beet. So from 84% of contract delivered so far, the quality of the crop remains very encouraging. We've received over 42,000 lows to date, with an average dirt tear of 6%, which has remained static over the last two weeks. Sugar content is now averaging 17.21% for the campaign. Sugar content is quite an interesting one, actually, as recently it fell sharply two weeks ago by a quarter of a percent in the week, have actually increased the following week by one third of a percent. That's so interesting. What's, uh, what will cause that then? Um, well, it can be a number of factors. It's not unusual at this time of year for sugar content to vary from, from one week to the next. Mm. However, this doesn't necessarily reflect sort of true infield variation, what's actually happening in the, in the plant at that time. It might just be that in, in one week we receive some older crop, uh, which has been in store for a longer period, and sugar content can, can actually decline in that stored crop. And then the following week, we could receive a greater proportion of fresh lifted crop with a higher sugar content. However, we thankfully, we do see actually a true rise in sugar content from fresh lifted uh, sugar beet at this time of year. And it's a physiological effect whereby as the crop reaches maturity, it, uh, it partitions more of its carbohydrate to sugar concentration as opposed to actual physical root weight so we hope to see that continue i hope the uh, variability uh, is is limited and ultimately that uh, that'll improve growers returns so far we have 300 contracts that have now finished delivering their crop for the season overall yield is 69.5 tons a hectare and that has increased by half a ton a hectare in the last two weeks and we hope to see that continue also over the remaining three weeks of campaign Lastly, I'd just like to advertise an event that the British Beet Research Organisation is holding on the 24th of February at Bracebridge Heath, which is called Drilling for Better Establishment and Improved Crop Performance. It is well documented that a successful sugar beet harvest begins with the preparation of the seedbed and ensuring optimum performance of both the drill and indeed the operator. So good crop establishment helps uh, to produce healthy uniform plants, as we all know, and ultimately that improves yield and profitability for the grower. So the, the course itself is open to all sugar beet drill operators and contractors, and really it provides the basic principles of drill setup for all models, uh, and specific sessions will include practical soil management, cultivation techniques for the perfect seedbed, sugar beet seed and pelleting, drill maintenance for optimum performance. And the presentations uh, will be provided and supported by Cavernland, Monosem and Vardestad. It's an 8.30 arrival, lunchtime finish with refreshments. Uh, and spaces are limited, so I would encourage anybody that's interested to get in contact with the BBRO on 01603672172. Nick Morris of British Sugar. The NFU has a new regional director. Gordon Corner is replacing Richard Hazlett, who's retired after a decade in the role. Gordon has been part of the NFU for the past couple of years and previously had a long and successful career in the Royal Navy, including serving on the Royal Yacht Britannia. Gordon, you're uh, taking on the role at quite a key moment for agriculture in the UK, aren't you? Yeah, very much so. I mean, obviously, most people um, are following the Brexit um, piece at the moment and agriculture is... uh, uh, you will have to uh, look and see what he can get from Brexit uh, and the NFU is doing all it can to make sure that uh, it represents farmers' needs you know, right across all aspects of agriculture. Now, um, 
as I mentioned in the introduction, you've uh, been representing um, the NFU, certainly in the the south of Lincolnshire, for the past couple of years. Uh, Royal Navy background before that. Um, what was your interest in farming then, in agriculture? Um, I've always been brought up in, in rural regions. Uh, I spent my childhood in Suffolk. Uh, my brother-in-law's a farmer. All my friends are farmers. Um, so I, I've had a, a lifelong interest in agriculture. Before I joined the Navy, I worked for an agricultural contractor um, for 18 months. What would you say you're most looking forward to getting your teeth into in this job? Um, going around and visiting lots of different farms, understanding their, the issues, and making sure we you know, represent those on a national level. And as we mentioned earlier, I mean, it really is a, a crucial time and the NFU has a huge role to play, uh, doesn't it, in, in the, what, what, what comes over the next two years and indeed the years after that. Yeah, very much so. Um, but it, we also mustn't forget the sort of things that are closer to, to, to need to get sorting out. And, and one of the things that, that lots of people will know and, and some I think won't know is the fact that so glyphosate, Roundup, um, is, a, is a herbicide that... Um, needs to be re-registered. It had an 18-month re-registration from June last year, and that ends in December 2017. I mean, it's a hugely important herbicide for farmers and, interestingly, for gardeners as well. So we need to look at that as a near a thing that needs to be, we need to lobby for and make sure people understand that, that it has no risks, and that's a science-based issue you know, rather than a political base, which is why it, it's got itself into the position it has at the moment. Gordon Corner, the new regional director of the NFU. A big job ahead and big shoes to fill. We wish uh, Richard well with his well-earned retirement. On to grain. It's from uh, Tom Miller of Openfield this week. How are things, Tom? Not too bad. Been a very wet week, of course. Yeah, but, wet, uh, wet and busy or wet and quiet? Uh, wet and quiet, really. <laughs> it almost feels like it's a half-term week, to be honest. Um, but... Looking at the markets then, uh, they seem to have found a bit of a level with cash values relatively unchanged over the week. Uh, London wheat futures also flat. Uh, however, seen Chicago wheat futures midweek saw two sessions of consecutive gains. Left traders scratching their heads a little bit really um, as to why, because there was no real fresh fundamental news or otherwise. Um, some thoughts turned to strong ethanol production report during the week showing record production. Then on the flip side... Um, it's the highest inventories they've seen since May. Uh, Matif French market also saw gains during the week, uh, but that was on rumours of problems with Black Sea execution, um, although it's really more likely to do with the EU running out of quality wheat, uh, which fits with the recent Argentina tender prices. Uh, so US weekly export sales, uh, just under half a million tonnes against trade estimates of two to three uh, half a million tonnes against trade estimates of two to three hundred thousand tonnes. Um, previous week, uh, was at 900,000 tonnes, which is the highest weekly figure since 2013. So despite the recent rise in prices, uh, US uh, has got strong dollar, which probably is more of a factor of importers having to pay up for the better quality wheat um, due to uh, supplies getting tight from other origins. Uh, weather appears to be benign for growing crops with some concerns in Ukraine and Russia due to lack of snow cover and freezing temperatures. Private analysts forecast US wheat and maize crop for 17-18 down 12 to 25, 12 million tonnes and 12, 25 million tonnes respectively, although this is not seen as particularly positive due to large carryover stocks both in the US and globally. Uh, fundamental standpoint, the market is well supplied globally. Uh, we're going to need a major weather issue uh, somewhere in the world to change sentiment for the coming crop. Um, however, the grain market is not immune from the outside influences, as we talked about before, uh, the impact of President Trump's policy decisions on trade. Uh, some are already fearful that they will affect agriculture detrimentally on grain and meat exports uh, and the ethanol industry, which consumes one third of the US maize production. 
Uh, so domestically, the UK is close to import parity in the deficit areas, uh, although it's one thing the calculation working to bring in the wheat or maize. Uh, it's another thing for an end user financing it and putting it in a port side store while they use it, costing them money. Um, the UK balance sheet will remain tight through to the end of the season. Uh, so looking at rapeseed, the market's drifted lower this week, pressured by a lack of buyers uh, and firmer sterling. February Matif expired on Tuesday, leaving the trade looking for direction. Uh, further US soybean sales on Wednesday gave support to the UK prices, uh, but any rises capped potential record Brazilian production and improving weather in Argentina, uh, boosting world supply prospects. Uh, so we've got five and a half months left before we see any domestic new crop seed, uh, lack of sellers at these lower levels, um, and we could see increased demand as supplies tighten, which will hold prices and maybe firm them up slightly as we go through uh, to the back end of the season. So looking at prices then, feed wheat for March is worth 146 to 148 X, May is 147 to 149, and harvest 127 to 129. November 17 is 131 to 134 X. November, uh, sorry, nearby Group 1 milling premiums continue to be poor at 2 to 5 overfeed, uh, depending on location and base price. Feed barley is 122 to 124 for March, May 123 to 125, uh, harvest barley is 110 to 112 X, and November 17, 114 to 116. Old crop spring malting barley, uh, premiums are circa 25 overfeed. Oilseed rape for May is 353x, new crop harvest 320x uh, and an £8 carry to November. Feed bean market remains firm with short covering into domestic compounders. Human consumption market remains non-existent, uh, problems carrying on in Egypt, uh, lack of finance. Uh, the balance sheet would suggest in the UK there's plenty of beans still to market, albeit the market currently feels tight on the back of lack of sellers. Uh, feed beans are worth 158 to 160x for Feb March. Thank you. Tom Miller. We'll have your weather soon. First, the big farmland bird count is back, looking at bird species on our farms across the country. And what more can be done to stop the decline of some species? Jim Egan is again the man behind the bird count. Tell us more about it, Jim. This is the fourth year of the big farmland bird count. We're really pleased to have got to year four and still maintained an incredible amount of interest. Um, Basic principle, we're asking farmers to go out and spend half an hour any time next week, any time before the end of next Sunday, um, and just count the birds they've got on their farm. And what we're really after is two things. We want to be able to shout about all the good things that farmers do um, and the good things they do for wildlife and farmland birds. And we're really hoping that the initiative sort of engages farmers, um, gets them to realise what they have got on their farm, and hopefully it'll encourage people to do a little bit more so we can try and help reverse the declines that have happened in the last few years. You had a brilliant response last year. Nearly a thousand farmers taking part, didn't you? We did. We had, it was fantastic last year. It was really great to see a thousand farmers coming and giving it a go. Um, we've done a few different things this year. So we've run some identification days across the country. Last few of those are happening today. Uh, there's one down in Leicestershire today, and a couple in Norfolk. So people have asked and they said, "Well, actually, we're a bit nervous. We we don't want to put the wrong birds in because not everybody's an expert by any stretch of the imagination." So we've done. They've, they've really good uptake from them Um, and this year when you go on if you've taken part in the count you go on to put your results in you're actually getting access to your own web page which keeps your own results so if you've done it for the last three years we've uploaded your results onto that web page you'll go in and you'll be able to see a comparison how many different birds you've seen what's the difference across the years and for some of the key important ones birds like yellowhammer tree sparrow gray partridge 
we've put you some tips and hints up there for farmers to look at simple things people can do uh, not just another hectare of wild bird seed mix but you know, if you've got tree sparrows one of the most important things you can do is put up some nest boxes and then if they want even more detail we've done some fact sheets for, for those important birds as well 130 uh, species of birds seen on farms last year it proves wildlife is thriving on our farms doesn't it I think it is thriving. Uh, it would be wrong to ignore the fact there's a decline, but we also need to recognise the fact that farming is responsible for a lot of the thriving bits. So the vegetable growing areas of Lincolnshire, Nottinghamshire and into the Fens, they're farmland bird hotspots. And they're farmland bird hotspots because of how we farm, because of the variety of cropping, the open the open ground that's there, the fact that you can't necessarily get carrots or potatoes in a whole field, and some of those field corners do get left with wild bird seed mixes and things in them. So it's actually where we can make or get the two things to work together. It can be really beneficial both ways round. So 130 different species is great. Uh, I couldn't think of many more that people didn't spot. So hopefully we'll get 130 or more again this year. Well, let's hope so. How can people find out more and get involved, Jim? Uh, really easy. Uh, it's website as ever, gwct.org.uk forward slash bfbc all the information you need about how to count what to count and what to do is there and you can also find the links to the uh, the apps that we've developed this year so uh, if you really are very busy and lots of people are you can actually download the app onto your phone and you can complete the count from the comfort of your tractor cab during next week so there's no excuse whatsoever for not getting 2000 farmers taking part this year no excuse indeed, Jim Egan there. And uh, as he said, you can find out more about the Farmland Bird Count online. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. Yes, turning to the weather then today, should stay dry, a bit cloudy though, six Celsius the high, the wind from the south-southeast, 10 miles an hour. Overnight tonight, clear skies could push temperatures down to freezing point in more exposed parts. Should be dry though, the wind more from the west-southwest at 10, gusting at 20 miles an hour for a time. Tomorrow dry at first, but some rain could be heavy by evening. 5 Celsius the high tomorrow, the wind from the south-southeast at 10, gusting at 15 miles an hour. And then overnight, Monday into Tuesday, again, that's a spell of rain, band of rain uh, drifting across the area. Uh, quite windy as well. From the south, 15, gusting at 30, 35, maybe even 40 miles an hour for a time late, late on uh, Monday. As for temperatures, down to around 4 Celsius. Tuesday looks like being a clear day with uh, plenty of sunshine. Milder as well, 8 Celsius. You're high. The wind from the west-southwest, 15, gusting at 25 miles an hour. And more of the same for the middle of the week as well. Wednesday, another sunny day. Temperatures nearer 7 Celsius, though uh, it could start off quite frosty with clear skies as we start Wednesday morning. It is going to turn much colder come the latter end of the week, though. A weather system over Russia and mainland Europe will affect things here. The jet stream also moving uh, a bit further north above the UK, and that means the possibility of snow a week after next. But a bit early to say for now. We'll uh, know more on next week's programme. Maybe uh, dig the long johns out just in case. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. Until next Sunday, as ever, have a good week's farming.